0: he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Must you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Father, Christ-honoring faith is a tall order for us who can do nothing apart from you. And as we know, as Paul wrote, faith is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. Not a one of us in this room could stand up and say, yes, I have Christ-honoring faith that I have come up with, that I have brought to him. I have honored him well. Lord, we in our weakness must confess we have failed in our faith. And yet... Christ has taught us that if we have faith even the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. So, Lord, this morning we are praying for that mustard seed faith. We are praying that prayer of another father in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, may we, as we look at this text, consider the crises that we face in our lives, the moments of despair, discouragement, distress. And we see some glimmer of your purposes to grow our faith in you, that we might honor Christ, for whom all things have been made and all things will come together in. We pray this to your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our instruction this morning from this text is very clear from the outset. You probably have a separate heading in the passages that we read, but the connection has to be made when Jesus leaves from Samaria where things were going so well do you remember what happened at the well I know it wasn't too long ago might be past that two weeks mark I don't know but when Jesus met that some that woman of Samaria at that well and turned her life upside down created in her a spring of living water what did she go and do She testified. She immediately, as J.C. Ryle put it, became a missionary the same day as her conversion. And she goes into the town, and the Bible tells us that many more of the Samaritans believed and came to her and said, It is no longer because of what you said we believe, because we have what? Heard for ourselves. And we know that he is the Savior of the world. What a great statement to end last week with, to consider that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that as he returns from Samaria back to Galilee and refers in verse 44 John the Apostle to his hometown of Nazareth where largely people uh, basically said, hey, we know you, there's a familiarity about you that, that makes us say that these claims and these things that you're doing are sort of hard to believe. It's hard for us to come to the conclusion that you must be the Son of God. And yet this is what John the Apostle is getting at and why he specifies Jesus' statement, which we can see in other Gospels. This is another one of those moments where something of the Gospel of John is found in what we call the synoptics of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so as John says, hey, we need to remember this. A prophet is not received in his own hometown. He has no honor in his own hometown. We see in this next story about this official and his son, which almost seems, in my mind, at first, not really to fit. Why, why does John stop us here and tell us this story about this official and his son? I think it directly responds to Jesus' comment that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And that is why we are talking about faith this morning and a particular kind of faith, a faith that honors Christ. This is also a good checkpoint for us as we move through the Gospel of John because at the end in verse 54, we see John saying this now was the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Now, I don't believe that John is saying that Jesus only turned the water to wine, and then in between all that time, now he finally comes here and does another thing. But this is most certainly the second sign that John wants to point out to us. John is, puts in more narratorial remarks. He, he speaks as the narrator far more than the other, the other gospel writers do, and we need to take note of that when John interrupts the story to give us some background information. We come to this story where we need to learn about Christ honoring faith. And we come to a story that seems on the surface as though it would be very clear. that This official, probably as we mentioned with the kids, probably a worker in the uh, court of Herod, probably a very wealthy man, comes upon a terrible crisis in his life. His son is sick. His son is not just sick, but close to death. We can assume that this man has used every resource he could possibly use to help save his son and has come up with nothing. That is the crisis. The crisis begins with the health of his son, but it brings him to a point where he has to come to Jesus because he realizes that everything that he could come up with is not going to save his son. This father, this official, clearly loves his son. He clearly wants to get his son better. And so when we come to Jesus' words to this man, they're a little bit shocking to us. Do you remember what he said to him in verse 48? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Can you imagine the desperation and despair of this man who comes to Jesus as one who he's heard of signs and wonders? This is not, again, he hasn't just heard, hey, he turned water to wine, so maybe he can heal my son. There were other things he was doing. John is just moving us from one major point to another major point. The first sign, the wedding in Cana, the second sign, the healing of this official son. He's coming for a very clear purpose. And Christ's correction towards him, his his seemingly harsh words, really point us to what this text is calling us to. Are we ready to let our faith rest on the words of Christ? Or do we, as Jesus says of this man, and by the plural of the you here to the other Galileans around him, do we need to see signs and wonders? This is coming off of the heels of that harvest in Samaria, remember? This is coming right after there has been a great outpouring of faith, a great response from Samaria, to Jesus, and we come to this man, we come to Jesus' return to Galilee, already set up for failure. We're already expecting that this man will not have faith that truly honors Christ. And we'll see that this faith that honors Christ is a faith that grows in crisis. He and the Galileans at first will be a contrast to the faith of the Samaritans. The Samaritans believe in him. But look at John's choice of wordings in verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans did what? They welcomed him. That's a positive word. We put that on our doormats, don't we? Welcome. Come in. I love those doormats also that say, take your shoes off. You know? Like, that's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, I mean, when people come to my house, I, I don't really care what they do. But growing up, it was definitely take your shoes off. And I think if my mom knew that there was a doormat that said take your shoes off, she probably would have bought it. Because in one sense, it kind of clarifies the message without us having to say it. And yet, I think in another sense, I'd rather communicate those things vocally so that people can see my face and see me saying, hey, if you don't mind, would you please, or or, or whatever that might be. Jesus' response to their welcome is pretty much, hey, take your shoes off. It's pretty much abrupt. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. We talked about Billy Graham this morning. We talked about him being in 1957 in New York City with a crowd of over 100,000 people. Can you imagine if he would have come up and said, here's my text this morning. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Thanks for coming tonight, everybody. George Beverly Shea. If that was his message, how many would believe? Isn't it amazing? Yes, Billy Graham had an amazing impact on church history and the salvation of so many people. God used Billy effectively. But we come to Christ's preaching, and we say, boy, Jesus, I think you could have learned from Billy Graham. He's seeking a genuine faith. He's revealing their rejection. He doesn't simply want people to have a surfacy, welcoming sort of, response to Jesus. He wants Christ-honoring faith, and that faith is meant to grow. How much of a problem is this in your own life? How easy is it for us to come to a point where, I I know I'll just use myself as an example here. I'm using it negatively, so it works for a sermon. But I know that in my own heart, when I finally nail down that reading plan, and when I have really, like, I've hit a week where I'm like, I am caught up. I'm not coming to Friday and reading four, four chapters of Ezekiel that I skipped over, right? When I get to that point, then I say, hey, here it is. This is the plateau. I'm here, Lord. You're welcome. I come to a point where I say so often in my wicked heart that I've finally done enough. I have finally reached that point where I think I can kind of coast for the rest of my life without actually growing. I think we're all sensitive to the idea of falling behind in our faith, right? We don't want to do that. Nobody says, hey, I'm coming to church today so that I can be a worse Christian. We say, yes, I want my faith to grow. We welcome Christ. But do we welcome crisis? Do we welcome Christ in the midst of our crisis? What does that look like in your own life? Again, in verse 44, what Jesus is looking for is honor for the prophet that he is. We know he is more than a prophet, and we'll talk about that shortly. But this word honor in the Greek, very fascinating. As we use it as a verb, we're talking about the full value of something. Because it's also in many other places translated price. What is the price of Christ? What is the full value of Christ? Is the full value of Christ to be found in signs and wonders? What do you think, church? No, of course not. Think about the word sign. What does a sign do? Points to something. Wouldn't it be weird if people were visiting our church and they came and pulled into the parking lot and they came right up to the sign and they said, I'm so glad I'm at church, but never stepped through the doors. That's what happens when believers search out signs and wonders more than the presence of Christ. When they reject his clear word, they are essentially standing outside of the church building looking at the sign that says the service is at 1030, and they're saying, I'm so glad I found the sign. I saw the sign. It opened up my eyes. Now I know Jesus. It's not the case. Finding the full value of Christ goes beyond the signs and the wonders. The signs and wonders, I mean, again, the word, sign, pointing to something, wonder. Wow, that's incredible. It shouldn't just be, hey, I really like the water turned to wine trick, or I really like the son getting healed, uh, the son of the official, or especially when we get to chapter 6, I really like that you could just come up with food just like that, and I didn't even have to leave. I want to stick around with Jesus because the wonder is all I want is not enough it is not the full value of christ the full value of what he has come to do christ has come to grant faith that grows beyond signs and wonders even through despair and desperation jesus doesn't take a moment as we see it here in the passage he doesn't even take a moment to say hey i'm really sorry to hear what happened about your son uh, that's that's really tough Uh, that's really difficult And it wouldn't have been a bad thing for him to do that, and it's certainly not a bad thing that he didn't do that. Notice that he jumps to the teaching. He jumps to the deeper problem. Because again, Jesus very simply could say, signs and wonders, I fixed everything. And in fact, a lot of the gospel message in the world right now, especially in America has revolved around the idea of Jesus bringing a kingdom that simply perfects the fallen world and makes things better such that we should expect that rather than things progressively getting worse before the return of Christ, that things will progressively get better. And that when Christ comes, he's just going to kind of be the cherry on the top of a perfect kingdom that he has already inaugurated. Where is the kingdom of God right now? What did Jesus say? It's in Joe. (laughs) Right, Joe got it. It's in me. Don't. You made me hit my microphone. Um, The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within his people. Is it here entirely? Yeah and no, right? You're not lacking anything right now, but it's just not completely realized. When Christ comes, the kingdom will come with him. And so why, oh Christian, are you so surprised that things are getting worse and worse and worse? Why is it that we act like, hey, one of these days things are going to get better and I'm finally going to be able to do that thing? finally going to be able to teach Sunday school or do that outreach thing or or be in junior worship or whatever that thing might be that you've been putting off because the crisis right now is too much. And this is our conflict. This is the thing we need to realize. When we are in crisis mode, that fight-or-flight mentality, faith in Christ becomes a last resort because we prefer tangible change. Let's be honest with ourselves. I know I've asked this question before. When the crisis starts what point does prayer enter in? Does it enter in as your first response to say, hey, listen, family, we need to pray about this before we take the next step. We need to look to Christ first. Or is it, okay, hey, look, the plumbing in the house, it's really bad, I'm going to call roto and we're going to get this fixed. And then at the end, when we have no other choice, we'll pray as a last resort. We'll seek Christ. This is what this official has done, has he not? He has said, I will use all my resources... To try to heal my son, I'll find all the doctors, all the magicians, all the whatever he could come up with to heal his son. Now, has he any knowledge of Christ? Is he rejecting that? No. But I would tell you that when we let prayer and our seeking Christ be our last resort, we are doing a far worse thing than this official has done because we have the word of God revealed to us. And when we say, what does God have to say about this? Or we should seek God in this issue... Finally, at the end, it is a good thing for us to do, but it's also a little bit embarrassing for us, isn't it? I'm talking about myself because I do this so often. Billy Graham preached to people who needed to meet Christ in the crisis. That was one of the things we didn't mention this morning, but that was another constant phrase, Christ in the crisis. Billy Graham received thousands of letters throughout his life and and even beyond of people asking for prayer, facing crises of all different kinds, of every different kind of person. And we see that in Scripture here, that this is, this is something that happens to everyone. The Samaritan woman, this, this woman who was an outcast, who was rejected by her society, she was in crisis. This official, this guy who was really, as, as high as he could get up the social structure, also in crisis. He was trusting in what he could see. These things didn't work, but I've heard about a man in Galilee who does signs and wonders. That's what I would like. I would like to insert my crisis into Christ's purpose and then bring it right back out after I get what I want. I want to be gentle here, but think about how we do this. Think about how we say, oh my goodness, you know what? Maybe prayer is the thing I need to do. Maybe coming to church on Sunday is the thing I need to do. And because right now I'm facing such a crisis, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to do the prayer. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to call a person to ask for prayer or for advice. We do that, and then once the crisis resolves, what is the unfortunate effect so often? Yeah, slack off. That's perfect. Write that in the notes. We slack off and we say, good, crisis solved. I'm going to go back to my sort of lukewarm Christianity. It's just all too common for us, isn't it? Do we still treat the coming of Christ as a last resort? Think about the return of Christ at the end of time when he comes back with that kingdom. Like, what if he came back right now? Would that wreck your Sunday afternoon plans? It would really wreck mine. Because I'm starting vacation this week, and I'm really looking forward to it. And right now, there are a few things that somebody could come to me and say, hey, would you like to not go on vacation? And I know in the new person that Christ is making in me that there is no vacation, there is no worldly pleasure that could compare with the full presence of Christ in my life. My faith is still growing. And I need to take these moments and say, yeah, the truth is, if Christ came in and said, hey, it's time to go, what would my response be? Has my faith grown beyond signs and wonders? Has it grown beyond my own comfort level? Jesus' response reveals the problem we face in this crisis. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And we can put that into the progressive future as well, I think. Unless we see things the way we'd like them to be, we will not continue to believe. That's a scary indictment, isn't it? Is this what Christ wants for us? No. But he's, he's telling us where our hearts so often land. Faith that depends on something such as signs or wonders is not Christ-honoring faith. And it is, in fact, no true faith at all. It is not just sort of like the Dollar General version of faith that you can say, I can get by on this. The only kind of Christ-honoring faith is a faith that grows beyond our crises and to his glory instead. You hear this. In, this, in the voice of the, command, of the man. Look at this again with me. Verse 47, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. He was at the point of death. Jesus said, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Can you imagine the response of this man to Jesus' words? Well, you don't have to imagine it because he said it. Sir, come down before my child dies. What parent in this room would not feel the weight of those words were they in the same situation? And cry out likewise to Christ. But Jesus talks about faith here. He doesn't simply say, yes I will or no I won't. He says, unless you see these things, you won't believe. Oh my goodness, how insensitive does that sort of sound on the surface? My son is about to die, Jesus, and you want to talk to me about my spiritual life? Forget my spiritual life for a second. There's something of that in this man's response, isn't there? Sir, come down before my child dies. When we pray, when true Christ-honoring faith prays, requests happen, right? And they ought to. How many times does Jesus tell us to pray in the Gospels? That's probably a fun research project. He tells us many, many times to pray. And he tells us to keep praying without ceasing. He tells us stories of a widow who was dealt unjustly, who something in her life didn't work out the way it ought to have, and so she went to a judge day after day after day. Finally, the judge just says, you know what, forget it. I'm going to give her what she wants just so that she can stop talking to me every day. And Jesus presents that to say, do you imagine that my Father in heaven is like this? Or do you imagine that he is more? that in that persistence of prayer, he has a deeper purpose for us. That we cannot simply offer an exchange with God to say, Lord, show me this thing and and fix this problem and I'll give you something comparable to it. What's the result of this man? His result is he goes home, his son is healed, his son is 100% better, And that's not the end of the story. It says that he believed, and who else believed, please? Who else believed? His whole household. He became a testifier to this faith that he found in Christ. The danger of the human condition that we see throughout the book of John is that looking for signs to satisfy earthly things is not only not enough for our true need, but it is not at all what Christ is interested in. We've seen it. We see it even at the point of the wedding in Cana, that first sign that he's referring to by mentioning the second sign, of course. Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they're all out of wine, right in the middle of the wedding. What are you going to do? What can we do? We can't go by anymore. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh, that really stinks, but listen, Mom, that's not... No, he says, my time has not yet come. This is not why I'm here. But He does it anyway, doesn't he? Because he loves us. He does give the signs and wonders. He does heal this official's son. But has every official son been healed? Has every wedding been saved from a lack of wine? Have all of your crises ended the way you wanted them to? No. Does that negate the purpose of God? Or does it in fact show that there is a depth to it that Christ is trying to get at? Rather than seeing signs and wonders, can you simply trust my word? How can you trust your word? How can you trust his word? If you're not reading his word, if you're not listening, if you're not learning and growing, that's what he wants. Rather than the signs and wonders, rather than me just obeying your request, come down and heal my son, can you just trust my word? Of course, that's what he does, doesn't he? The man cries out again, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, go. He turns the command backwards, does he not? Come down, the official says. Jesus says, go. My child's going to die. Your son will live. Go. You don't need the sign and wonder. You don't need me to do exactly what you want me to do to fix the problem. You need to trust my word. So J.C. Ryle again says that the word of Christ is just as good as the presence of Christ. And it is not that those two things are in competition. But boy, have you ever had a moment where you just say, God, where are you? Jesus, are you in this at all? Are you doing anything right now? I'm in crisis. I'm in despair. I'm in danger of some terrible thing. Are you even here? And his answer to the question of his presence is always found in his word. Are you supposed to pray? Yes. But from where are you meant to pray? From what he has spoken. So it is worthwhile. People used to carry Bibles around with them so that they could open them at a moment's notice and see what God has to say for whatever situation they might be in right then and there to find some kind of encouragement. We carry these things around. We carry these things around. We sit in our doctor's offices and see what Facebook's going on with today. And Oh, there's a funny YouTube video. And Have you seen the one with the cat? Those things are not bad, but they're a bad alternative, aren't they? When we're in crises, do we turn to Christ? This official had to answer a very difficult question in that, what Jesus presents to him, rather than seeing the sign and wonder, rather than me doing exactly what you said, can you simply trust my word? Church, can you trust the word of Christ this morning? It is harder than it sounds, of course. And this is what Christ is calling us to repentance in this morning, to embrace that ultimately... Crises point to the ultimate crisis. That Christ went through the perfect crisis on your behalf. That Jesus being crucified, though there are traditions and perspectives that say this was just the natural outcome of a man who spoke in a way that was contrary to the religious leaders of the day, to the political leaders of the day, to the lives of individual people, of course he was crucified. We need to go deeper than that because God is sovereign. He is in control of all of human history. In a mysterious way, free will works in that. In a mysterious way, you have to make a choice today. And yet God is in control. So when Jesus dies on the cross, it is not simply because Pilate said, my hands are clean. It's not simply because the Pharisees had the perfect trap for him. They unwittingly were a part of God's perfect, flawless, and ultimate plan for crisis. To create the true crisis in the midst of your crisis. It's amazing. Because again, Father, or Jesus, come heal my son. Unless you see signs and wonders, you don't believe. What is Jesus doing there? Is he being insensitive? No. He's saying there's a deeper problem that you have here. Your deeper problem is that you can't just simply be lulled to sleep by comforting words. Everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out in the end. You'll get through this. Things will be better tomorrow. We don't know if things will be better tomorrow. In fact, we probably know that things are going to be worse tomorrow. Christ points to the crisis in the midst of your crisis. It's the deeper one. It's the point of faith. Because when you are in that kingdom that he is bringing to this world, you're not going to sit there and go, I can't believe that thing happened back when things were that way. You're going to be sitting there marveling at the work of Christ in you in that moment. And you should start doing that now. That's why he went to the cross, to endure the ultimate crisis, so that all your crises would melt away in comparison. They're not meaningless crises that you're facing. Your trials, your challenges mean something. And Jesus cares about them. He cares about you in the midst of them. But he cares even more than you do. Because we don't sit there and go, how is my faith going to endure through this thing I'm dealing with? We go there and say, how am I going to get through this thing I'm dealing with? And Jesus says, yes, I want you to get through it. I want you to get out the other side stronger. What did Jesus say to Peter on the night he was betrayed? How about this for encouragement? Hey, I'm going away. By the way, Peter, Satan asked to have you. Can you imagine Peter in the middle of that sentence going, "Um," and you said no, right, Lord? That's not happening, is it? Jesus goes further and says, but I have prayed for you. Oh, thanks, Jesus. I think you can tell Satan to take a hike and leave me alone, can't you? No, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that when you return to me, you would strengthen your brother's. There's purpose for the temptation of Satan in Peter's life, even in those three denials. Hey, don't you know that guy? Nope, never heard of him before. Hey, you were with him too. No, I've never seen him in my entire life. Hey, you're, you have the same accent as him. You're clearly from... And then with a curse, the Bible tells us, he said something bad and then said, I do not know the man. And so Christ goes to the cross on our behalf as those who have rejected him, who have looked for an easier and more comfortable way out, who have said, hey, the signs and wonders have ceased at the cross here, and all that's going on is this whole wrath of God being satisfied thing. I don't want anything to do with that. And Christ continues in the crisis. He embraces that. He goes beyond it. He conquers death. And he does so to grant us faith that goes beyond the shallowness of seeking signs and wonders and to the depth of how will Christ receive glory from me? in what I'm facing right now. We've been listening to um, Keith and Kristen Getty's Sing Conference digitally these past couple weeks. And there was a great testimony that Sarah shared with me. Um, it was somebody who was talking about their childhood and how their mother had raised them to know Christ. And the question the interviewer asked was, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's what all of us parents want to know. What is it that your parent did so well to bring you to the place you are today? But what, How did they teach you? How did they grow you? How did they encourage you to stay firm to the gospel and to trust in Christ? And she kind of said, well, I think the difference was that rather than doing it in a spirit of fear, my mom taught me and discipled me with a spirit of love and of hope, being encouraged and trusting Christ in the midst of all of that. That whatever crises may come, we can as parents, we can in our own Christian life, as we consider our brothers and sisters who are going through crises that we can't even imagine, We can, with hope, say, Jesus, be glorified in this person's life. Show them what you've done on their behalf. So the work of Christ has made faith alive in us by his word. We cannot lose heart, people. We cannot falter when it comes to our own time in the word and the time in the word for others, our testimony to our family members, our children, our neighbors, our, our coworkers, whoever it may be. Christ's word, again, is as good as his presence. He acts, and we believe, and this is what the official did. What did he do? Did he say, hold on, Jesus, I said, come down, and then you'll heal my son? He didn't. In that moment, there was something about the words of Christ that we need to see when we read this book. You need to have moments where you read Jesus saying, go down, your son will live and see the law hit hard, the, the strict judgment of God on the faithless heart, saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. But then hear the good news and the grace of, your son will live. Go. And that's what the official did. He went. He went trusting that the affliction he was facing, the trial and the crisis It's going to be solved simply by the word of Christ. His journey is completely different on the way back home than it was to Cana. It was utterly transformed from a crisis of despair and desperation to faith that grows in the midst of the trial. So Christian, what will you need to embrace growing faith? What is it that you're waiting for, for your faith to grow? Because You can't wait any longer. The the place that you're in right now is where Christ wants to grow you. He's not waiting. He's not saying, hey, when this thing ends, then we'll start doing something. He wants to grow you right now. I need to go with that kind of confidence. Listen to J.C. Ryle again. Um, If you you don't know or if you don't remember, J.C. Ryle was a preacher in the 1800s. He says, affliction is one of God's medicines, which answers our question earlier. What do we do when we're sick? What do we do when things are going wrong? We need the medicine of God. He continues, by it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. No other way but through that affliction. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world, which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. This man, this official, he didn't just need his son to be healed. He needed to escape the judgment of hell for his sins. And if this affliction didn't come into his life, he may never have met Jesus. Ryle continues. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is greater. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what we naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Are you willing to accept losses and crosses? Are you willing to even perhaps exchange your prosperity if you could realize today that something that you're prospering in may in fact be in the way of your drawing nearer to Christ? What is better for you to do? This is what he wants us to do, to walk by his grace as the people of his word, seeking to build up, believing, to build up and grow our Christ-honoring faith through whatever crisis we might face. What does this growing faith do? It's Very simple. Look at, the, look at this man's story. He requests... He obeys, he trusts, and he testifies. He makes the request, come down, my son's going to die. Your son will live, go. So he goes, he obeys, he requests, he obeys. He trusts, he continues that journey all along. Now he could have made it in time to see his son earlier, but clearly he stuck around to hear more from Jesus because his word transformed his life. So faith that honors God and that grows requests it obeys, it trusts, and then it testifies. And it doesn't hit that last one and go, oh, I was really okay with asking for things, I was really okay with obeying, I'm really okay with trusting, but please don't make me open my mouth and tell somebody else about it. The fact remains that if this faith has really set root in our hearts and is growing, that is a natural consequence. And it is only our sinful, selfish hearts that get in the way of that. It is not a problem of us saying, I need to learn how to testify, although it's not a bad thing to hone that skill. The problem is is that our sin is in the way of what that faith that God has created in us wants to do. There is progress. This man sought the sign, but he took Jesus at his word. He believed and he testified. Where are you today? Are you ready to testify? Or is there something in the way of that? Something else, some sign or wonder that you wish you could see? Because the fact is, if we're not testifying people, it doesn't matter if this morning we did some kind of sign and wonder. It wouldn't change our willingness to testify to Christ because it's a sin issue, not a sight issue. Fernando Ortega writes writes a lot of beautiful music. But one song I heard last night that I had to put in here has to do with the death of his brother. It's tough to listen to. And so I read an article where people had asked him Why do you write these tragic songs? Why do you write about people in the middle of these crises? He says human stories, especially tragic ones, deal with the weight of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation, that being that Christ came to this world and lived amongst us and faced the crises that we face. That there is nothing that we could say we're going through to him and and that he would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. The incarnation of Christ shows that Jesus has embraced our crises and has went to the depth of the true crisis of faith that we need such that we can, with the psalmist, say in Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. What does our crisis say about Christ? Spurgeon for you again. He's attributed with this one. This isn't officially one of his quotes, but it is attached to him throughout history. He says beautifully, I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. Have you learned how to do that yet? To kiss the wave that strikes you against the crock of ages? Thank you, crisis, for leading me to Christ. This is not a superficial, idiotic response, but it is rather a deeper understanding of what our crises exist for under the rule of a sovereign God who wants to grant us true faith. So what will you do this week in the middle of your crises? Will you kiss the waves? Will you embrace the weight of the incarnation in your crises? Is your faith ready to honor Christ and to trust in him more than what you can see? Are you ready to request of him? Are you ready to obey him at his response? Are you ready to continue to trust him? And are you ready to testify to him? We're going to share in communion here in a moment. And I want you to be thinking as we share in this about Christ. Obviously, this is his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. The crisis that he faced on your behalf, on your faithless behalf, church. He has faced that crisis, and he has won. He has overcome death. Death was arrested, and our life begins. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. That is what we will celebrate here at the table. I'm going to pray and read from the Gospel of Luke. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, this morning, as we come from your word to an act of faith by coming to the table of communion, Lord, praying that you would... Convict our hearts of sin so that we might repent, so that you might restore us. to Fellowship with you if there are things in the way of true worship right now. But Lord, would you also deal with the fact of crises in our hearts, just as Christ did with this official. We want to receive that this morning, Lord. I, I pray that none of our hearts would be in a place where we would continue to say, "No, I want to have these blinders on. I just, I just want you to fix it so that I can keep doing what I wanted to do. But Lord, the crisis changes our path away from ourselves, and leads us to you, Lord. Let that be the reality for all of us this morning, particularly as we come to the table of communion, that we might testify to your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.